Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hello, my little sweetness. And Kat, get your ass out of my face again. Gosh. All Every right. time I try to get on this podcast, for some reason, the cat just likes to show her tush. Uh, she loves you. Um, maybe so, that's how she feels about the world. She's trying. She's trying to send us a subliminal message. Maybe. Well, well I guess we'll never know. Um, so I, but the the topic I wanted to talk about was, you know, you, were you growing up not religious, then becoming religious, and then becoming Lubavitch, and then focusing on, I guess, yeah. I guess heterim, so to speak, like. You always wanted to take the hard way. You wanted to suffer in your Judaism. And I was hoping you can go ahead and explain that in regards to like how you accepted, you know, rules and regulations. And you felt that like you were doing things like the Marines, where it's like, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body. So the more you suffer, the better your life is going to be, so to speak. Um, it, Not to put you in the hot seat, but basically uh, that's what you pre- told that me growing up. About, first of all, that premise about suffering is totally not true i never felt i never felt that i actually suffered okay i mean i felt it you know i guess i don't felt i suffered from judy like you know like that reformed candor said to the class he says what some people might look of as restrictions other people find spiritually fulfilling i never really i never really suffered suffered it was um i would say Okay, I would say, you know, perhaps, um, it's not gonna say, it's, it's, how can I say it? It's, it's a, not exchange, I'm looking for a better word than exchange. Um, it's more disciplined, I guess. It's a, it's not, it's a, um, toughening out, maybe? No, you, you know, you can't have everything in life. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that, God, yeah. yeah, it's fine. It's fine. She's trying to compete with, um, you know, payback scammer pierogi with his gorgeous Persian cat that's been on his, uh, it's been on his, uh, podcast a few All right, times. So back on topic, back on topic. Okay. So, um, it's not like, okay. We can't have everything in life. Yeah. And we have to make a choice. And I see this, I never felt that I was suffering. I felt that what I was giving up was more than worth what I was getting back. Okay. Um, I mean, you mentioned giving up as like something, again, like it it sounds like a sacrifice. It's not, it's not, yeah, but. If you weren't giving it up, then you realize it just wasn't necessary. Maybe you're 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 removing like the excess that you really didn't realize you you didn't really need. Maybe similar to like people going up to like I guess Halavai Buddhist retreats where they go up for a week or two and then meditate and they just get rid of everything and they they sell everything and they just only have like the clothes on them and and that feels kind of freeing. So in a sense. The, the religiosity of Chabad kind of felt more freeing and not necessarily restrictive. In a way, but not to that extreme. I mean, you know, as Jews, we 
do not, of course, embrace a monastic life. We do not believe, we do not believe in living in poverty. Although if you find yourself in a situation where despite your best efforts, you are, you are in poverty. In Judaism, there's an idea that don't feel that you're, don't, you know, not to feel that you're, that, that your suffering is for nothing. That there are certain things that, you know, that there are certain things spiritually and mentally that, you know, as a human being that you will gain from going through a tough experience. Um, so I, and there is, I mean, like one of the things, I mean, yes, I, for most of my life, for most of my life, I have, I can't say I lived in, you know, horrible abject poverty. Thank God I was, you know, never, never on the street or anything like that. But, you know, I've, I've lived a life basically where um, there were times that I had to really watch my spending more than other times. Um, there were times that, that, yeah, there were times that financially were very, very tough. But what it taught me was it gave me, it gave me a certain, once, I mean, it did pass, you know, once I did get out of that situation, it gave me an appreciation and um, for the good things, I it gave me an appreciation, you know, for once I got out of it, for, you know, being in a more comfortable situation, I appreciated it a lot more. And I was much more grateful to God for it than I would have been perhaps otherwise. Um, I'm trying to think now. And it also gave me um, more of an empathy for what, when I've heard, when I heard about other people going through similar situations, um, you know, I was more apt to help them because I knew what it was like to do without. Okay. Also, okay. I it also put me in a position where I was actually able to advise others who were going through the same thing. When your father was unemployed. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it was it was a tough time. I mean, we thank God we have, we worked together. We made ends meet. Um, the you know what what was tough about it was not knowing from day to day if he was going to have a job or not. I'm not being able to make plans because maybe we'll make plans and then he'll get a call from one of the agencies he was dealing with either to go for a job interview or maybe um he also he did a number of he did a number of um, jobs for Vatikashras at the time and for OU Laboratories. He, we didn't know about that. And we found out about that after he lost his after he lost his job, that these things were available and that they really liked calling him because they liked having somebody more in the southern part of the country rather than having to send people out from New York to have to drive a long distance and stay overnight or a couple nights away from their families. He at least was able to drive to these other areas since we were you know more situated in the south in maryland um but i came across there was a woman who uh, who i came across who was in my carpool and she calls me up and she the poor woman did not sound well she goes i'm sick i am so depressed i don't know what to do so what happened her husband for a number of years over 25 years worked as an as a top engineer for this particular company, the company went totally down the tubes, like almost overnight. Filed for mm -hmm. bankruptcy, fired everybody, you know, laid off everyone. 
And this was a woman who never knew what it was like to do without, never. Came from a you know, upper middle class family, um, never, never had to worry about finances at all. And suddenly she finds herself plunged into a situation where she suddenly has to really watch herself, watch her spending, worry about, you know, how they're going to pay rent, how they're going to pay this, how they're going to pay that. And so she said, I'm so sick. I'm so depressed. I don't know what to do. So I said to her, listen, let me give you some advice. I said, I've been, been there, done that. I said, stop with the depression. Just stop it. I said, because if you become so depressed and mentally ill that you have to wind up being maybe institutionalized or you wind up in a total catatonic state where you're not going to be there for your kids or your husband, what good's that going to do? I said, because then in addition to financial problems, now nah, you've got marital and emotional problems. So do yourself a favor. When you have financial problems, keep them financial. Don't let it upset you. Don't let it get you sick. Just keep it financial. It's money. I said, tell me, do you have a degree? Do you have any training? She says, as a matter of fact, she said she does have a degree in psychology and counseling. Huh. And um, she says, but she never really used it. I said, aha. I said, go to all the public school systems, apply for being a guidance counselor. I said, does your husband have any other talents besides being an engineer? She says, he loves construction and building. In fact, she said, he repairs everything in the house. Any time they ever needed anything done in the house, any construction, any repairs, he did it. it was, it's like his hobby. He loves it. I said, fine. I said, down, I said now this time was in, on Federal Hill in downtown Baltimore. At that time, they wanted to renovate the neighborhood. They wanted to gentrify the neighborhood. They had all these old houses on sale for only a dollar. Oh, wow. And that time, this is during like the 1980s. I said, you could buy as many houses as you wanted, but you had to make the agreement. You were going to renovate them. So she says, you know, she goes, that's an idea. I spoke to her a couple months later. She, she was much better, had a smile on her face. I said, what's going on now? I said, you were right. She said, she got a job. As a guidance counselor in Baltimore County Public Schools, her husband bought up a bunch of houses and he loves what he's doing. He's, he renovated them and he's renting them out. If there's any repairs to be done, he goes, he makes the repairs himself. He can do plumbing. He can, he can, he's a brilliant guy. He can do everything. And he says he loves what he's doing. That's awesome. He's not even thinking about looking to go back to work with another company. So I mean, that's a great story. Um we kind of got a little sidetracked because I, I had two other questions to ask you. Um, one was, and I think we talked about this in the previous episode, but why did you choose Chabad over Breslov or Satmer or Yeshivish or any other labeled sect of Orthodox Judaism? Um, you gave me an answer when I was younger. I'm curious to see if that answer has changed or Ooh. you're going to say something what, what, did I, what did I tell you? I'll tell it to you after you answer the question. Okay. I knew immediately that certain groups were not for me. I knew immediately that your more extreme uh, Breslov, Satmer, um, Belzer, I knew that those groups were too extreme for me. I just, you know, especially Satmer. I think, I think there's, well, I know some people are going to be very offended. <laughs> but I think anybody that would be 
in such an extreme group like the Satmar Chassidim. Okay, you, you know, you have to, okay, you know what? If, if you're a Satmar Chassid and you find it fulfilling, bless you. Please, it's okay. If, you know, if you find that spiritually fulfilling, you know, if you find that that's your avenue to Yerushalayim, wonderful. But I, I just feel that uh, I think people in those groups are a little on the edge. Not all of them, John. I mean, remember Rabbi Taub was Satmar, and he was an amazing person. He was, he was an amazing person who attracted group Jews from all walks of life to his synagogue, and to and to and to go to him for advice. He was, he was he was a wonderful person who just you know, and, you know the world's not filled with too much of these wonderful people. But um, when you think of like, like in Torah Karta, you think of the uh, stone throwers, the Shabbos stone throwers. Yeah. Not for me, no, I'm not an extremist like that. Oh, I did hear an interesting story on Rabbi Gordon's um, Shiorim about that there was evidently there was a whole group of, of people from the Natura Karta in the late 1950s the ones that were throwing stones, the cars on Shabbos, who came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and they asked him, they wanted him to, they wanted him to um, encourage Chabad to join them. They wanted, they basically gave him an invitation. They wanted Chabad to join them. The Rebbe's answer to them was, tell me about one Jew that has decided to become Shomer Shabbos because you busted their windshield. <laughs> nice <laughs> and that just totally shut them up um i felt now when the, when i was looking around for different groups at first i went for modern orthodox and um i don't know i felt these i felt the modern orthodox people it was kind of like the right it was almost like the right track for me but not quite i I felt that there were certain groups in Judaism, like the Karlebach group, where there was all this jumping and singing and kamandava and a lot of fun. But then something told me there's got to be more to Judaism than, than jumping and singing and having fun. Then um, there were other groups that were very, very like um, Musardik. That was like you're more, you're more Lithuanian and German groups were more Musardik. And I just felt that, um, I felt, you know, Muster's got its place, believe me, and it can be very constructive, but I just felt I there was something that I needed. I needed like more, more honey than lemon juice <laughs> <like> in <laughs> my life. And I, I told you the story about the Boston Rebbe, right? Yes, yes, we've talked about that. I, we talked about that story, right. And um, what I liked about Chabad was... I liked their teaching of Hasidus. I felt that the, you know, the Hasidic teachings were more up my alley. They had more of appeal to me. Um, I also liked the fact that they weren't cloistered like the other more extreme Hasidic groups. That so they believed in getting, they believed in being in the public, getting out in the public, and actually trying to, I like their idea of McCarving non from Jews and trying to basically spread. You know, offer education, offer education and information 
And that's what I told um, when your your brother became, you know, was considering becoming a shaliach. We were discussing the idea of being a shaliach and um, to what point do you push when you're dealing with non-from Jews. And I said to him, look, I said, as the Chabadniks, as shaluchim, our job is to offer information and opportunities to those who want it. Yeah. And you can offer, you offer you know, somebody to come for Shabbos to experience, have the opportunity to experience a real Orthodox Shabbos. You can offer them information that they're looking for. But if they don't, you know, can offer them the opportunity to put on tefillin, you can offer them a Shabbos candle. But if they say no, all right, that's, that's certainly their choice. And, you know, we, we respect that. So my my question then, I, I I have a few questions in the comment. Um, one of them was like I as you were talking, I realized because I thought of this myself. Why I daven, you know, at Chabad and whatnot. Um, I don't want to be the most religious person in the room. You know what I mean? Like I, I that's why for me, I, I used to daven at a modern Orthodox uh, shul. Uh, it was near one of, one of the places I worked. And I knew more than the rabbi. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't, I, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, at a place like that. I want, I wanted to be ignorant. I like feeling ignorant because at least it feels like I'm growing and I'm learning, you know? So that's why I like being around people that are more religious than me and hold by more stricter things. I wouldn't do it just because it's not my preference. You know, I have my own opinions about it and whatnot, but like, you know, I I personally not just don't mind it. I really enjoy being around people that are more religious than me. You know, mm-hmm. um, but the other thing I wanted to notice that, like, as you were talking, I was going to ask you then, how would you define Jewish suffering then? Oh boy! Oh boy! Let's put it. Let's put it this way. I think I think we Jews have suffered enough, and I think like this is what the Rebbe was trying to do during his lifetime. We Jews have been through so much yeah. in our history that when the Rebbe became Rebbe, it was right after the Holocaust. And it was a time when Jews just felt the whole brunt of... No one cares felt, then, felt, no one cares felt, now. They felt the whole brunt, you know, they felt the whole brunt of, you know, of the negativism at the time. I mean, you know, um, the... You know, the, the saying years ago and the saying, in fact, when my mother, I remember hearing my mother saying this all the time, too. You probably have heard stories about people who grew up in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, saying that they heard this all the time from their parents and grandparents. Spirit design a yid, spirit design a yid, design a yid. And what the Rebbe's job was to do, he, he had a big job of basically uplifting the entire Jewish psyche. To a happy, positive level, and showing them, isn't it schwer to sign a yid? It's good to be a yid. Yeah, it's good to sign a yid. And um, if you look in the Tanya, it means it's very close to you to do the Torah in your heart and your mind and your actions. Yeah, uh, for and, listeners, you know, and, it, and it is people don't people don't realize that. 
people look at Judaism like, oh my God, it's so hard. So it's 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 not it it's not that hard. It really is not. I mean, what you you need to eat the pork, which by the way is very high in carcinogens. You know, <laughs> you need to eat the tray stuff. You need to eat the shellfish again. Very high in carcinogens and all sorts of bacteria. I mean, you know, to you know, the basic laws of kosher's are pretty. Pretty, pretty easy to you know, pretty easy to follow. Um, oh, what was it? Oh, I have to tell you something. A, a story that occurred to me. I yeah. just thought of it the other day that happened to your father. We got a Shabbos guest once. This was a young man. His father was Jewish. His mother was not. He was dating a Jewish girl very seriously. He wanted to marry her. And he found out. I don't know how he found the Sabbath. He contacted Chabad or something. But he, he found out that the Halacha was he technically was not Jewish, even though he was one of these people who was raised thinking he was Jewish. You know, yeah. there many people like this because his father was Jewish. They went through, I guess, a reform, conservative temple, whatever. And he found out that really technically he was not Jewish. So he thought he wanted to do things right. And he decided he's going to look into the idea of conversion because, you know, if he thinks he's Jewish, he doesn't want to just go around thinking he's Jewish and finding out he, technically he's not. So if he feels he's Jewish, he is Jewish, he knows he's going to take it all nine yards. But he something was stopping him. And so he decided to go to a Frum family for Shabbos and really get involved and see what it was, what Frum Kite was. Well, that Shabbos, your father had a friend over. <laughs> I'm not going to mention his name, but you know. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah. And your father and this friend for some reason at the Shabbos table, got into a very silly, regressive adolescent mood. Yep. I don't know why or where it came from. And they started telling all these very embarrassing X-rated jokes. <laughs> and I'm telling them, cut it out. You know, and there, somehow, there is something about them they couldn't stop. And they're just going on and on and on. I'm going, oh, no. And here we have this guest here who is here to see what a real from Shabbos is. And here's this man in a kapata with a beard. Yamaka. And he and his friend are telling these off-color jokes. I'm going, no, 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 no. Well, after Shabbos was over, the young man calls me back. And the minute I hear his voice, he said, I want to apologize for you. I, I'm so sorry. I said, I know you came to see a real from Shabbos. And I'm sorry. I don't know what got into my husband. He was in this, he and his friend were just in this crazy mood. And the guy says to me, oh, please don't apologize. Please don't apologize. Because of what your husband and his friend did, I decided I want to convert. <laughs> I said, really? He says, yes. He says, let me tell you something. He says, what was stopping me from converting was I thought in order to be an Orthodox Jew, I would have to be like, like a, a, a tzaddik, like an angel. Like I, I couldn't even be a, a, a total, you know, flesh and blood human being. But when I saw your husband, this Kapata Longbeard and his friend telling all these filthy jokes, he said, it made me realize I can be a human being and I can be from too. That's awesome. By the way, the answer when I asked you why you were Chabad, you said Chabad is like the Marines. And that you like it when it, you like it. Chabad is tough and and strong, and there were like the army of Hashem. Therefore, you choose like Marines. So that's why you chose Chabad. And that was the answer you gave me when I was like, I think 16, 17. 
Yeah, right. and I always felt I always felt that way about Chabad. I thought other groups, other groups look for Hitorim. I call them I call them sissy Hitorim. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like we want to do the whole nine yards, so we'll look for a little way around it. As so we talked about Chabad, is they take on Judaism all nine yards. They take it on one hundred percent, and they don't look for an easy like it's an easy way out. You know. I mean, it's not that you should suffer, but, you know, it's it's not really suffering, suffering. It's make, I guess I would say, I get, I'm lack of a better term, making you tough. Again, so that's what is. I said at the beginning. That's what yeah. I said at the beginning. You but went full denial on that. But that's suffering. You know what I mean? But it's not. It's, like, it's not really suffering. It's like, it's like, it's like, the, it's like, the, it's like, the, like the person who exercises to build up his yeah. muscles. No, like they say, no pain, no gain. But there's, yeah. there's, there's, a, but there are different pains. There's one pain, like I, I've taken exercises class, and they always tell us there's a good pain and a bad pain. The good pain is you can you're working, and you're you're working and you're feeling yourself getting stronger, and but you're putting in the work. The bad pain is when you feel, uh, God forbid, like um, something sharp and painful. Now that now that's not good in exercise. That means that means that you've done something wrong. So I feel that same way when it comes to Judaism. I I mean I I'm not breaking halacha, I'm not going against the Torah, I'm not doing any of that. But for me, because I grew up in Orthodox home with Bali Tshuva parents, and then I went to Israel, and then I got my smicha in Israel, and then I started learning more and more about halacha and what is what is the right thing to do and all the right machshavas and things like that, I started realizing that the way I grew up and the way I was raised and the way I learned, there were a few things that were a little bit, you know, off and they were they had to be corrected. And, well, I agree with you on that, yeah. And I find that too, yes. So be- because of that, mm-hmm. I kind of developed a, a different taste of Judaism that would be different from anyone else in my family. Like I, I, I can appreciate a Chabad outlook in life. I very much believe in the Chabad way of life, but the halachas of Chabad and the stringencies of Chabad, I don't necessarily do. Well, you, know? you said you said something one time, which which is true, is that uh, the problem with the Alibali Chuva is because we've never uh, we we didn't see you know really. Shomer Tomer and Yitzhak Tomer Mitzvah's Judaism practiced as we were growing up in our own immediate families and our own immediate environment. So we go along with those people who carved us because we don't, you know, we don't know what else to do. And yeah. and there were, and so a lot of the stringencies, which I found also, also myself, there were some stringencies that I found also myself years later that were not necessary and that I was following because, like I said, the people who McCarved me were following those stringencies. And that was like their personal stringencies that I didn't realize at the time. I thought this was supposed to be for everybody. And what was, I'll give you an example. I remember one of the things that the family, I spent Shabbos with whatever at first, they told us that on Shabbos, you're not supposed to brush your teeth because you could cause your gums to bleed. And also you're scraping it, all sorts of things. And then when I was in Crown Heights, I was learning Halakha. It was one of the Halakha teachers heard that many of the girls were being told not to brush their teeth on Shabbos and Yantam. And he was surprised. He says, I'm surprised about this. He goes, 
He's and he was a rabbi. He says, I brush my teeth on Shabbos. He answered, what's going on here? What are these you know, girls being taught? And then I, I finally spoke to our dentist about it. And our dentist who also was about was about Shuba. Um, he got to the point where he actually went for a Pesach din to a couple of um uh poseks about this because he says the Orthodox Jewish kids were coming with mouths full of cavities after every yantam. He says, what is the real halacha? And then he got back to me and he said to me, the real halacha is, the real, uh, real halacha is that you don't, you know, brush your teeth very vigorously, purposely causing them to bleed. Um, you can brush them lightly and you can even floss very lightly. You know, don't tear floss, but use one of those floss picks, you know, those ones that are already, you know, torn for you. There's little yeah. you know, pick things. And he says the there's a halacha against smearing, which is the toothpaste, but you can brush your teeth with mouthwash. You can yes. floss and can brush with mouthwash. And so I found, and so then I started, you know, doing that after I heard about this. So it, it's funny because I actually had a whole discussion with my friends. We had this like small kiddish club at Shul. And at the kiddish club, I go ahead and like I ask a random halacha question or minha question because I'm just curious because I like thinking of like, well, this is what I know. What do other people think? And I asked them about like okay. brushing teeth. What's what's the deal? You know, and okay. what it is, is is that you're. You're not allowed to smooth something on Shabbos. That's why putting lotion on your hands is usser. That's why, you know, with with shoes and shoe polish on Shabbos is usser because you are basically, you know, smoothing. So you can't use a, a hard bristled uh, brush. It needs to be a soft bristled or sometimes you have these Shabbos brushes where they're like, it's plastic. It's mm -hmm. plastic bristles. And what you do is you take watered down toothpaste or mouthwash and that's what you do. And as long as you're, you're like, you have to just avoid with your gut. You can't bleed on Shabbos. You can't make yourself bleed on Shabbos. So when it comes to flossing, you can't necessarily floss, at least from what I've learned, because you're when you're flossing, you're forcing a situation where you have a higher probability of bleeding, and it's best not to. So I don't floss on Shabbos, but I brush my teeth with a, a Shabbos toothbrush. And, mm -hmm. and that's really what it is, is where it's just like, you know, there's there's also being more stringent, you know, is something where it's like you for me, it's like I, I grew I grew up in a stringent household. As I got older, I took a very lenient approach to Judaism. But at one point I took such a lenient approach, I didn't even feel the sanctity of the mitzvah or the sanctity of the moment. And I felt mm -hmm. like I had to like go back to a more stringent approach just so I can feel the Judaism. And I think for me, at mm. least the way I, I understand it is that it's more about feeling Judaism to a point. I'm not saying, you know, a lot of these, like, I don't call them rabbis, whatever these, these people who believe like, oh, you don't have to keep Shabbos and Kashas to feel Jewish. Like, that's not really the point. The point is you're mm. supposed to follow Torah and mitzvot, no matter who you are. That's why you have all kinds of Jews that keep Torah and mitzvot. You know, and they're all together as one because we all keep to our mitzvahs. Like that's the point. But whatever, I, I can go all we can you go know, a whole long. I I remember when your father and I, you know, first got married, um, first few years of our marriage, there was um like the controversy, as usual is in all Jewish communities, and it was um you had your conservative and reform, you know, 
uh, groups that were, their idea was that they were trying to attract Jews to Judaism by basically watering it down and not doing the mitzvahs. But they thought if they would not, if they would not do the mitzvahs, then that would attract them or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, like they, sort of so, appeal. So, so I, I told your father I am tempted to write a letter into the Jewish Times. And your, when I told my your father about this letter, he cracked up laughing. He goes, "You write it, I'll sign it." The, my letter, my the letter that I wanted to write, I never did, but the letter I wanted to write was, um, during the Vietnam War, there was a saying that fighting a war for peace is like. Blankety for blank Virginia, blank yeah, yeah. for Virginia. Yeah. The same thing can be applied to any group that gets rid of the mitzvahs to try to attract Jews to Judaism. Yeah, it's it's silly. It's really, really silly. And that's where I find it so like I, I find it it's frustrating to me, but I, I learned to not let it get to me all the way. Um, but for the sake of a podcast, I think amping things up and making things dramatic, I think is great for our <laughs> listeners. Um, but it's just it's silly. It's really pointless and really silly. But adding to what I was saying, with Shom- being Shomer Torah Mitzvos, within that world of Shomer Torah Mitzvos, that's where the flavor comes in, where it's like, how much how much stringency, how much leniency on what things exactly do you hold? But, and you do that throughout a lifetime, honestly. Throughout a lifetime, you, you do that to go ahead and find yourself and define yourself in Judaism and figure out ways to do that because – these Torah mitzvahs are there to serve God, which is what we're supposed to do in the first place. So, but, but this is the purpose of of a rav. This is why you go to a rav, correct, for shilas because they're supposed to be the experts. And even the rav that you pick, you're supposed to you like if you're supposed to pick, a rav is supposed to consider all ramifications before mm-hmm. poskening a shila, and that includes where you are spiritually. That includes your environment. And yeah. he takes he takes all this into consideration. Yeah, I mean that's that's why you're supposed to have a mashpia as well, like somebody that's supposed to be there looking out for you outside of your wife and your friends, you know, that you can lean on, and then you speak to a rav to really poskin something, but you should be knowledgeable enough to to obtain like a, a lower tier level of rabbinical ordination. You know, I mean, that's that's what I like about Chabad is how they explain how it's explained to me is that like in Chabad, you go through the regular like yeshiva world, and when you're uh, finishing up, you know, at eighteen, your 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 last part of like I'm trying to find the right words for it, but whatever the the last part of the lower tier yeshiva, you then do a two year program of smicha, okay. and you should have a, a the base a lower- measure, you mean. Yeah, base metrics, but it's yeah. they, I think they call they call it Zal, I think, or something like that. Uh-huh, they yeah. finish Zal, and they start two years of smicha, and after mm-hmm. smicha, and then you have your mashpia. Then it starts getting to the situation where it's like worst case scenario. Then you call a rav. Like you don't consult a rav right away because there are a lot of people. I remember speaking to somebody, and they were telling me how you know, at the end, like, and then at the end of the day. You know, you, you really need to go ahead and consult a Rav, but they wouldn't even wait till the end of the day. They would do right away instead of consulting, maybe you're safer and figuring it out yourself and understanding it. They were so scared and had such little knowledge. They had to constantly be calling Rabbanim for like mm-hmm. the simplest things. And it's wasteful time on well, actually, so many levels. The, the Lubavitch Rebbe, I remember when I was in New York in the 70s, spoke about that. And he, he preferred 
that when people were in debt, that they do go to a Rav. And he said, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, what concerns him at the time was that you had a lot of people who, uh, I hate to say, it, but you know, felt the way you, you, what you just said, that they would consult a book first, they would think about it, then you know they would try. You had a lot of people that were avoiding calling the Rebbeim, and the Rebbe said this was not good. He said, there's nothing wrong in consulting the Rebbeim as often as you feel you need to do. He says, this, this is what they did, this is their job. That's what they're supposed to do. But the, he also said, he also said it is important for um for men to get their smicha so they don't have to constantly consult a rav. It, uh, I I literally just read this like I think mm-hmm. like a month ago, where it was like the Rebbe strictly said to get smicha mm-hmm. because they didn't want to have this constant questioning thing. You should have a knowledge, you should have uh-huh. a background, you well, should know all, what's well, going on. Well, yeah, but there's also a, a you also need a background to be able to know how to ask your shayla to begin with. Again, that's, that's back to the smicha thing. thing. If I have smicha, yeah. I know what kind of question to ask. Like I got consulted where I had to, I, I was, I normally, I normally ask a friend of mine who's more knowledgeable in things than I am. I ask him. And if mm-hmm. he doesn't know, then I ask like a guy above him. And I, I had this one shayla uh, last week about like the certain 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 situations on Shabbos, and I had a shout about Shabbos, and like I was able to speak and discuss and and say the points that were necessary in order for the Rav to understand what I'm saying, so he can give me the right answer. Because what happens a lot of times is that you'll have somebody not know how to talk to a rabbi, say a bunch of unnecessary extra information. The rabbi starts getting confused, being like, "Wait, what is he saying?" <laughs> and then they get into this whole long spiral, and the rabbi. Hopefully we'll give the right answer, but sometimes we'll give like a, an answer that other people will be like, I don't understand. And then it's just like, well, yeah, because the guy who was asking the question didn't really understand what was going on right. in the first place and didn't know exactly. how to ask. Exactly. It's, you really have to know how to ask a question. Yeah. That's that's the other point. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember one time that there was this um, in the dormitory, we were doing like uh, these skits yeah. for Saturday Night Entertainment. So one of the girls does the skit where she pretends she's calling, uh, it was Rabbi Azdaba, was the big, is one of the big, I think he still is, I think he's still around. I think it's still a big pusky yeah. in Crown Heights. So she pretends she's on the phone with him and she says, so Rabbi Azdaba, listen, after I had some miso soup, I had some, and she goes into all these technical, like um, uh, queen quinoa and all these at the time, like macrobiotic, um, you know, macrobiotic um, herbs and everything. And then she says, so what, so what should I, so she said, so what should I, um, what bracha should I make? What bracha krona should I make? And then there's pause and she goes, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> it's cute. Um, yeah, so I guess it really, what it really boils down to is you have to know what you're doing. And if you don't know, that's okay. But you have to know, you have to ask somebody else. That's why. Again, that's why it's important to have a mashpia. It's important to have someone, you know, that's knowledgeable and everything, or not everything, but knowledgeable enough to help guide you. That knows more than you. That can help help you understand what's going on. And it, it's very frustrating because, like, we're about to end, but like, you really got to be careful with who you talk to, what you do, and and oh all of that as well. All right.
Thank you for listening to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. Please send us feedback and comments on our Facebook page, and like and subscribe on YouTube. I know I would like it, and my mother would too.